Welcome to today's podcast. It's good to be with you again. You'll remember the last time we met, we discussed uh, Noah, and we talked a little bit about the global flood, talked about from where Noah's ark left and where Noah's ark landed. It was an interesting discussion, to say the least. Today, we're going to be discussing the life and times of Abraham. Now, just by way of reminder, the podcasts that I do are the first of each month and the middle of each month, literally the first and third uh, weeks of the month. And I'll cover basically two, uh, two weeks worth of material that would be in your curriculum that you're studying in church. So today, Abraham. We have uh, discussed in some of our earlier presentations that from Father Abraham to Noah, uh, these folks lived in, in North America. But before proceeding with our discussion today about Abraham, we need to mention that following the flood, uh, the biblical people that we'll be addressing basically from here on out are going to be folks from the Western Asia area, where we're literally going to shift uh, continents And as I pointed out in our last presentation, it was generally accepted that Noah's Ark landed in the Mount Ararat region, north of the Mesopotamia Valley. And so, again, our story is going to be coming from this particular region of the world. Um, From this point on, our Genesis narrative is going to shift from a wide angle, you know, global flood kind of a thing, to a very, very narrow, specific family look. Uh, We've got a family here that's going to be destined for greatness that we're going to be talking about today, the family of Abraham. Now, Abram, as he was known then, was born in 2150 B.C. Oh, wait a minute, or was it 2056? No, it was 1996. No, no, wait a minute. It was 1800 B.C. Literally, there are four or five different references to the birth of of Abraham, and we're not sure exactly when Abraham was born. So we're going to be very scientific about this. We're going to use the date of 2000 B.C., which is a combination of these four dates divided by four. Very scientific. So Abraham being born 2000 B.C. will be what we'll be using. He was born in that particular time frame. I'm going to begin by reading a rather convoluted verse from Genesis chapter 11. It says, And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his son's son, and Sariah his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth from the year of Chaldees to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. Okay, very convoluted, hard to actually follow verse. We'll explain it and talk it a little more clearly in just a moment or two. The point I want to make with this verse, verse 31 of chapter 11, is where is this Ur of the Chaldees? That's what I want to bring out of that rather convoluted verse in Genesis 11:31. Well, until the 1920s, the Ur of Chaldees was generally thought to be in the upper Mesopotamian Valley, up near where perhaps the word Assyria is on the slide that's there. Then came along the archaeologist Leonard Woolley, and he was excavating at Tel El Mukwair, and uh, his excavation identified the dig site he was at as the ancient Sumerian city-state of Ur. And Woolley thought immediately, well, I have found and lay claim to this being the hometown of Abraham. Now, the descriptions of the ruins that he described uh, captivated the public's imagination, and Woolley's claim kind of took a, a firm hold. But this site does not hold up under scrutiny. We're going to go back to the original claim that Abraham's Ur was north 
in the northern valleys of uh, Mesopotamia. Uh, we find evidence, the first evidence of this being the case, when Abraham sent his servant back to find a wife for his son Isaac. He was instructed to, uh, quote, go to my country and to my kindred. In Genesis 24.10 of the New International Version, it says, Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. And he set out for Aram Neharam and made his way to the town of Nahor. Okay, the reference to Aram Neharam is really of interest to us. This word sometimes has actually been translated to Mesopotamia. It, uh, it literally means in Hebrew, the region between two rivers. A region in northern Mesopotamia, near or between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Joshua states that Abraham's birth was, quote, beyond the river, Joshua 24, 2. Now, the Sumerian Ur is not between two rivers. If you look at it down here, this is Woolley's Ur at the bottom of the slide. It is not between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. In fact, it's on the west of the river Euphrates. It's not even beyond the river, as Joshua said. So where is this city, the city of Ur, the birthplace of Abraham? Now, the fact that the Bible specifies Ur of the Chaldees implies that there was another city of the same name as the Sumerian Ur of, of Wooly. 730 miles north of the Ur of Sumeria is the town of Ur, Urfa. Today, the town is called San Lurfa. And there's a cave in San Lurfa, actually, that is claims to be the birthplace of Abraham. Now, there are a number of towns surrounding San Urfa, or Ur, that uh, seem to be named after Abraham's uh, relatives. So we're going to do a little biblical genealogy here for a minute. Uh, you've got Surug, S-E-R-U-G, is Terah's, and again Terah is Abraham's father, it's Terah's grandfather. And then Nahor I is Terah's father. And then you have Terah, who has three sons, Haran, Nahor II, and Abraham. Well, from Urfa, it's 28 miles to the town of Haran. From Urfa, it's 27 miles to the town of Sereg. Now, we haven't yet discovered the town of Nahor, as alluded to in Genesis 24, again when it says, Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Neharam and made his way to the town of Nahor. I'm sure the town of Nahor will be discovered someday. So towns in this vicinity of our northern Ur appear to be named after Abraham's great-grandfather Serg, his brother Haran, his brother Nahor. Now these towns are mentioned in what is called the Merry, the Merry Tablets. We've got a picture there. They're, they date to the time of Abraham. And the Merry Tablets are from an ancient Semitic city-state in modern-day Syria. Uh, these tablets were found on the west bank of the Euphrates, where this city was at one time. It flourished as a trade center between 2900 B.C. and 1759 B.C., so it's right in the middle of our, of our Abraham. And what was found was 25,000 clay tablets from an excavated burnt library there, written in Akkadian. And it covered a period of about 50 years from 800 to 750 B.C. And on these little 
Akkadian tablets give information about the kingdom, its customs, the names of people, and the towns and cities that are in the region, including Sereg, Haran, and, uh, and Urtha, or Ur. Another evidence of Urtha is found in our Book of Abraham in the Pearl of Great Price. And reading the first chapter, we sense a very strong Egyptian influence. And I want to read these verses. This is kind of an important part of our story. It's Abraham 1, 5 through 12. My fathers, having turned from the righteousness and from the holy commandments which the Lord their God had given unto them, unto the worshipping of the gods of the heathen, utterly refused to hearken to my voice. For their hearts were set to do evil. They were wholly turned to the god of Elkna, and the god of Libna, and the god of Mamachra, and the god of Korosh, and the god of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore they turned their hearts to the sacrifice of the heathen, in offering up their children unto these dumb idols, and hearkened not unto my voice, but endeavored to take away my life by the hand of the priest of Elkna. The priest of Elkna was also the priest of Pharaoh. Now, at this time it was the custom of the priest of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to offer up upon the altar which was built in the land of Chaldea, for the offering unto these strange gods, men, women, and children. And it came to pass that the priests made an offering unto the god of Pharaoh, and also unto the god of Shagriel, even after the manner of the Egyptians. Now the god of Shagriel was the son. Even the thank offering of a child did the priest of Pharaoh offer upon the altar which stood by the hill called Potiphar's Hill, at the head of the plains of Olishem. Now this priest had offered upon the altar three virgins at one time, who were the daughters of Anira, on the one of the royal descents directly from the loins of Ham. These virgins were offered up because of their virtue. They would not bow down to worship gods of wood or stone. Therefore they were killed upon this altar, and it was done after the manner of the Egyptians. And now the last verse, And it came to pass that the priests laid violence upon me, that they might slay me also, as they did those virgins upon the altar. Okay. There's a real strong Egyptian influence right here where Abraham's at in Ur. During the time of our Abraham, 2000 BC, the Egyptians had control, and I want you to look at the light green area on the map there. They had control of approximately all present-day Israel, Lebanon, and western Syria where our Ur is located at. In fact, if you look at the southern part of the map where the Ur of Sumerian was located at, there is no Egyptian influence, influence there. In fact, there never was. And so our northern Ur, where the Egyptian influence is so strong and where they were offering sacrifices, human sacrifices, is in fact Abraham's Ur. It's our Ur that we're referencing. So now we want to, uh, to look at why it was that Abraham left there's some obvious reasons that we've already alluded to, but let's, uh, let's go over this. In Abraham chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the land of the Chaldeans, at the residence of my father, I, Abraham, saw that it was needful for me to obtain another place of residence. 
And then the second verse, And finding there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me, I sought for the blessings of the fathers, and the right whereunto I should be ordained to administer the same, having been myself a follower of righteousness, desiring also to be one who possessed great knowledge, and to be a greater follower of righteousness, and to possess a greater knowledge, and to be a father of many nations, a prince of peace, and desiring to receive instructions and to keep the commandments of God, I became a rightful heir, a high priest holding the right belonging to the fathers. All right, that's an awful lot. Abraham sought an awful lot of things in that verse. He sought happiness. He sought peace. He sought rest. He sought for the blessings of the fathers. He sought for an ordination. He sought for great knowledge. And then he sought for greater knowledge. He sought to be a great follower of righteousness. He sought to be a father of many nations. He sought to be a prince of peace. He sought to receive instructions. And finally, he sought to keep the commandments of God. I also might add that he sought to rid himself of the association of those who were worshiping these idols. And no doubt, he sought to flee from those that would do him harm. I want to address four of these very important desires that Abraham sought. Number one, Abraham's desire to leave wickedness and idol worship behind. Two, Abraham's desire to be the father of many nations. Three, Abraham's desire to seek for an ordination. And four, Abraham's desire to ultimately be the possessor of greater knowledge. The first, Abraham's desire to leave wickedness and idol worship behind actually came to him in the form of a commandment. Reading from Abraham chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, it says, And as they lifted up their hands upon me, that they might offer me and take away my life, behold, I lifted up my voice unto the Lord my God. And the Lord hearkened and heard, and he filled me with the vision of the Almighty, and the angel of his presence stood by me, and immediately unloosed my bands. And his voice set was unto me, Abraham, Abraham, behold, my name is Jehovah, and I have heard thee, and I have come down to deliver thee, and here's the commandment part, and to take thee away from my fa thy father's house, and from all thy kinsfolk, into a strange land which thou knowest not of. And this because they have turned their hearts away from me to worship the gods of Elkanah, and the god of Libnah, the god of Machra, and the god of Korash, and the god of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore I have come down to visit them to destroy him who hath lifted up his hand against thee, Abraham my son, to take away thy life. Behold, I will lead thee by my hand, and I will take thee to put upon thee my name, even the priesthood of thy father, and my power shall be over thee. And it was as it was with Noah, so shall it be with thee. But through thy ministry my name shall be known in the earth forever, for I am thy God. And in the last verse, Behold, Potiphar's hill was in the land of Ur of the Chaldea, and the Lord broke down the altar of El Elkanah and the gods of the land, and utterly destroyed them, and smote the priest that he died. And there was great mourning in Chaldea, and also in the court of Pharaoh. Now, in Abraham 2, verse 14, it says that our 62-year-old Abraham departed. But he isn't alone. He isn't alone. He took his wife, Sariah. He took Lot and his wife. Now, you'll remember Lot was Abraham's nephew. 
It's Abraham's brother, Haran's son. Now, I want to spend just a minute on Haran because uh, he died earlier, and there's a little bit of uh, some confusion on, on this issue. In the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 11:17, it states, And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. He died before his father, Terah. And that's kind of an interesting phrase. And there's all kinds of stories surrounding the death of Haran. One story alludes to a confrontation with father Terah. Another, that he died due to a great famine in the land. And still another, that he died in a fiery furnace of Nimrod. Well, in Abraham chapter 2, verse 1, it tells us how he died. Haran died apparently from the famine. So we're going to go with that, despite what the other stories may say. So, Abraham journeys on, and who does he have in tow? Dad. Terah decides to follow him. So they head from Ur to the town of Haran, 27 miles away, as we talked about earlier. With the famines temporarily abated, Terah decides he's going to stay in Haran, and he's eventually going to die there. But Abraham, he must move on. So this brings us to the second desire of Abraham's heart, to be the father of many nations. Now, in your reading material for the next couple of weeks, you're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 12 through 23. And in those uh, 11 chapters, I count 12 times that the Lord appeared to Abraham, most of the times face to face. And then as seven times in those chapters does the Lord reiterate to Abraham this blessing that he's about to give him. Well, perhaps this blessing is best described the first time that Abraham hears it in Abraham 2, verses 9 and 10. And I will make thee a great nation, and I will bless thee above measure, and make thy name great among all nations, and thou shalt be a blessing unto thy seed after thee. And in their hands they shall bear this ministry and priesthood unto all nations, and I will bless them through thy name. For as many as receive this gospel shall be called after thy name, and shall be accounted thy seed, and shall rise up and bless thee as their father." Now the Bible goes on to declare that God's going to reaffirm this holy covenant with Abraham's posterity, in particular Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, who we'll be talking about in our next podcast. Therefore, the most far-reaching event of the Abrahamic dispensation of the gospel was this covenant. Now there are 13 main points that I want to share with you relative to this covenant. Number one, Abraham is to be a minister of righteousness to a strange nation. He would be the father of a great nation. His name would be great among all nations. Abraham's posterity would receive an everlasting inheritance. Abraham's posterity would be as numerous as the stars of heaven, and many of his descendants would bear the holy priesthood. Because of this priesthood, all families of the earth will be blessed. Those that receive the gospel would be accounted the seed of Abraham. Christ will come through Abraham's seed. Those who bless Abraham will be blessed. Those who curse Abraham will be cursed. At the time, circumcision, later baptism, was the sign of the covenant. The covenant was to be everlasting, and all these blessings are predicated on keeping the Lord's commandments. It is quite a blessing.
It should be observed that on April 3, 1836, Elias appeared to both Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, and he bestowed or restored again to Israel the same blessings, covenants, and promises which he had given Abraham over 4,000 years ago. In Doctrine and Covenants section 110, verse 12, After this, Elias appeared and committed the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham, saying that in us and our seed, all generations after us should be blessed. Well, my friends, this is us. This is what this scripture is referring to. This is us. And so Abraham's journey continues. He passes along the ancient route of the Damascus Road, passing the ancient site of Jershon, which is in Jordan today, crosses over the Jordan River to the place of Shechem. Here in the place, here in the plain of Merah, the Lord appears to Abraham. And in Genesis 12, verses 7 and 8, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham, and he said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there Abraham built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountains east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abraham journeyed, going on still towards the south. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. Abraham had finally found his promised land. After traveling 600 miles, his land would be the land of the Canaanites. Now, this promised land is sometimes referred to as the Levant, or the eastern Mediterranean region of Western Asia, pretty much like the uh, red circle you see um, in the slide there. But the journey of Abraham wasn't finished. This great famine that I've just uh, spoken of in the land is going to push Abraham's little band another 550 miles south to the land of Egypt to survive. Well, for now, we're going to set aside our book of Abraham. The reading assignment given for this two-week period of time covers Genesis 12 through 23. And there's far too many things for me to spend an awful lot of time on what is found in those 11 chapters. But here's a brief overview of the events as recorded in the Joseph Smith translation of these 11 chapters. In chapter 12, the Lord tells Abraham to tell the Egyptians that Sariah was his sister. Chapter 13, Lot is going to separate himself from Abraham because both have, have too many possessions. In chapter 14, Lot is going to be rescued from warring kings. And with this discussion, we're going to introduce and spend some time talking about the high priest Melchizedek. In chapter 15, Abraham pleads to the Lord um, because how can he be the father of many nations when he has no children? Chapter 16, Hagar bears Abraham a son, and his name will be called Ishmael. Chapter 17, the circumcision covenant is introduced, and our Abram is now going to be called Abraham, and our Sariah is to be called Sarah. Abraham is told that Sarah will bring forth a son, and his name shall be called Isaac. In chapter 18, Abraham engages in a rather interesting bargain with the Lord to try and save the city of Sodom. Quote, and the Lord said, I will not destroy them for ten's sake. And the Lord seeds speaking to Abraham. That's again in chapter 18. Chapter 19, the Lord saves Lot, Lot's wife, and two daughters, and then destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Lot's wife looks back and she dies. Lot's daughters do wickedly and become the mothers of the Moabites and the Ammonites. In chapter 20, Abraham interacts with a righteous king named Abimelech. In chapter 21, at the age of 90, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. Chapter 22, Abraham is obedient to his attempt to sacrifice Isaac. And then finally, in chapter 23, Sarah dies at the age of 127, and Abraham secures the cave of Machpelah for an ancestral tomb. The purchase of the cave and field of Machpelah from Ephron the Hittite has a little bit of archaeology I'd like to share with you associated with it. We have six people that are buried underneath, in a cave underneath, in this structure that you see on the slide. Sarah, Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah, Leah, and Jacob are all buried in the cave that was purchased by, by Abraham. And the Israelites over the centuries remembered this location, and uh, Herod the Great built this monumental building that you see um, over this cave area. Today, there are six medieval large empty tombs within this building commemorating the burials of these matriarchs and patriarchs. There is also considerable evidence to indicate that pilgrims from the first temple period, that would be 1000 BC or, or, or earlier, visited this site and paid homage to these patriarchs. Okay, we're going to turn now to our third point of emphasis on Abraham seeking an ordination that would enable him to bless others. This discussion is going to lead us to a discussion about the archaeological evidences of perhaps the city of Salem, perhaps Melchizedek City, and the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis chapter 13, we learn that when Abraham and Lot separated, Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. Unfortunately for Lot, this decision will cost him his family. After all, it's all about where you pitch your tent. And that phrase could be a great conference talk someday. Lot suddenly finds himself in the middle of a war where he's pitched his tent. Four kings from northern Mesopotamia come down and attack five Jordan Plain kings. So we've got a war going on, and Lot's finding himself sitting in the middle of it. The battleground was the Valley of Siddim, which translates to the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. The northern forces of Mesopotamia overwhelmed the southern kings of the Jordan Plain, driving them into the tar pits that littered the valley. Those who escaped fled to the mountains, including the king of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, these two cities were then spoiled and ransacked, and their goods and provisions were taken, and some of their citizens were actually captured and taken prisoners. And among those captives was Abraham's nephew, Lot. When word reached Abraham that Lot had been captured, Abraham immediately mounted a rescue operation. He took 318 of his elite trained servants and he went in pursuit of the enemy army who was now returning north to their homelands of northern Mesopotamia. Abraham caught up with them at the city of Dan, that's a northern city in Israel. They flanked the enemy on multiple sides during a night raid. Well, the enemy ran as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus, and were ultimately defeated. And Abraham was able then to recover the goods and provisions and the captives, including his nephew, Lot. Now, there is some archaeological evidence to this battle actually happening. 
many of the Mesopotamian king names that are mentioned in Genesis 14 that came down to attack the Jordan Plain kings are found in the Mesopotamian clay text of Mary that I, that I talked about earlier. There is also a really unique archaeological presence in the city of Dan in northern Israel where this rescue took place. At Tel Dan is a Middle Bronze Age arched gate that is called Abraham's Gate. It is the oldest surviving archway in the world. The imposing mud brick gate was constructed about 1800 BC by the Canaanites at Dan on the eastern side of their city. The name Abraham survives in Dan today because of the associated events that transpired there. In the Joseph Smith translation of chapter 14 of Genesis, we find 10 additional verses that are not included in our King James Version. These verses are relative to the great high priest Melchizedek. And as far as I'm concerned, are some of the most important verses uh, in the Bible. Abraham's desire to seek for an ordination is going to bring him to the high priest Melchizedek. So Abraham now is returning home, the victor, after this war. But Abraham knows that he must first stop and pay tithes to the high priest Melchizedek. So when we read from Genesis chapter 14 and we read some of these verses that are not included in our King James Version, we read, And Melchizedek lifted up his voice and blessed Abram. Now Melchizedek was a man of faith who wrought righteousness, and when a child he feared God and stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the violence of fire. And thus, having been approved of God, he was ordained a high priest after the order of the covenant which God made with Enoch. And we discussed that some time ago when we talked about Enoch. It being after the order of the Son of God, which order came not by man, nor by the will of man, neither by father or mother, neither by the beginning of days or the end of years, but of God. And now Melchizedek was a priest after this order. Therefore he obtained peace in Salem, and was called the Prince of Peace. And this is a really interesting verse that I'm going to read to you, a verse we talked about earlier again when we talked about Enoch. And his people wrought righteousness and obtained heaven, and sought for the city of Enoch, which God had taken, separating it from the earth, having reserved it for the latter days or the end of the world. Isn't that an interesting verse? And this Melchizedek, having thus established righteousness, was called the king of heaven by his people, or in other words, the king of peace. And here we have, again, a fulfillment of the desire of Abraham. And he lifted up his voice, and he blessed Abraham, being the high priest and the keeper of the storehouse of God, him whom God had appointed to receive tithes for the poor. Therefore Abraham paid unto him tithes of all that he had, of all the riches he possessed. And it came to pass that God blessed Abram, and gave unto him riches, honor, and lands for an everlasting possession, according to the covenant which he had made, and, and I might emphasize, according to the blessing wherewith Melchizedek blessed him. Well, in Doctrine and Covenants section 84.14, we're told that Abraham received the priesthood from Melchizedek, the high priest. You know, if I was wondered personally about the city of Salem, a city where its people were righteous enough that many obtained heaven, where is, where is such a place? Where was the city of Salem or the city of Melchizedek?
The scriptures speak of this place as someplace near Hebron, which is Abraham's hometown, and also it was apparently in the region of Sodom, since the king of Sodom, a fellow named Bera, was there to greet a victorious Abraham as he came to pay homage and tithes to Melchizedek. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to visit, on several occasions, a rather obscure dig site about 22 miles south of Jerusalem and about 10 miles northwest of Hebron. I want to share with you a thought or two relative to this site. It was discovered in 1961 when Israeli soldiers unearthed a cave when they were attempting to put a road through the area. It is referred to as the Bethlehe site, or the house of the jawbone, and it may refer to the biblical site of where Samson slew a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. There are other proposed meanings about this site, including perhaps something to do with our Book of Mormon, Lehi. Well, during the 1970s and 80s, some excavation took place at this site, and then it, uh, they picked it up again in 2005 through 2008, when additional excavations were renewed on behalf of the Institute of Archaeology of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, with funding from a nonprofit foundation here in Utah. A significant amount of this discovery found that Bethlehem lay in caves underneath the ground. In fact, it was almost as if it was an underground city. Of interest to me, however, was the discovery of a large, monumental building, now referred to as a temple. At this temple site foundation were discovered some beautiful mosaics. Two are really unique. One appears to show an ordinance being given by the laying on of hands. The other appears to be an individual with his arm raised to the square. There is also what is referred to as Melchizedek cross or seals of Melchizedek that are carved into the walls of the cave and in mosaics. It's interesting to note that symbolism found in the seal of Melchizedek can be traced back actually up to the approximate time of the high priest Melchizedek. It's two overlaid squares forming eight points. And although these eight-point stars, uh, their symbols uh, have many names through various cultures and religions, it's believed that the symbol represents Christ. Now, the layout of the temple is really unique. It contains a baptistry, or mikvah, or a cleansing pool as part of the structure, but to me, it's really fascinating that there is a room off of the main hall with an altar that is in the center of the room. I call it a Melchizedek priesthood altar. This special room was perhaps designated as the Holy Room or Holy of Holies. And you can see myself kneel, kneeling at this, this altar. Other features of this site reveal an underground cruciform colibarium. Cruciform meaning it's four rooms that kind of form a cross. This columbarium is used for raising doves and pigeons for food, fertilizer, and mostly for sacrifice in a temple. <laughs> Perhaps the temple just overhead. The columbarium is the second largest found in Israel, inferring that this city was both large and important. Also found at Bethlehem are etchings on the walls. One etching reflects the oldest known Hebrew writing of the word Jerusalem, dated to approximately 600 B.C. A fellow named Moore Cross, Jr., a renowned epigraphist from Harvard University, translated the inscription. 
I am Yahweh, thy Lord. I shall accept the cities of Judah, and I will redeem Jerusalem. Absolve us, O Yahweh. Well, because of this site's close proximity to Hebron, again, Abraham's hometown, and the other sites associated with the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 14, I can't help but wonder if this site was associated in some fashion with Salem or Melchizedek City. All right, let's stay with our archaeology theme for a few more minutes and look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Is there archaeological evidence of the destruction of these two very wicked cities? Now, Sodom and Gomorrah are possibly located under or adjacent to the shallow waters south of a former peninsula in the central part of the Dead Sea. Now, today, this peninsula now fully has separated the sea's north and southern basins. New research finds that a powerful airburst from a meteor colliding with the atmosphere may have wiped out a Bronze Age civilization that existed along the north side of the Dead Sea about 3,700 years ago. An extremely hot, explosive event leveled an area of over 200 square miles, including what is referred to as the Middle Gore. That's a central plain to the north of the Dead Sea. It not only wiped out 100% of this Middle Bronze Age cities and towns, but also stripped agricultural soil from fertile fields. The researchers theorize that the intense shock waves from this blast may have also covered the area with, quote, a superheated brine of Dead Sea salt. And we know that these uh, salt deposits are all around the area where Sodom and Gomorrah once existed or where we feel they were. The team also says that archaeological evidence shows that it took at least six centuries for the region to recover and for civilization to return thanks to the contamination and the destruction of the soil. All right, let's now turn our attention to the last of the desires of Abraham, and that was to possess not great knowledge, but greater knowledge. And although this is not part of our reading assignment for these couple of weeks, it's nevertheless, I feel, very important. This greater knowledge is shared in Abraham chapters 3 through 5. And what I'd like to focus on are the written records from Egypt that support Abraham's greater knowledge being shared with them. So what greater knowledge are we referring to? In Abraham chapter 3, verses 1 and then verse 4, And I, Abraham, had the Urim and Thummim, which the Lord my God had given to me in Ur of the Chaldees. And apparently the Lord used the, Abra- the Urim and Thummim to share with Abraham this greater knowledge, as it identifies in verse 4, And the Lord said unto me, By the Urim and Thummim, that Kolob was after the manner of the Lord. Well, Abraham is given really unique and special knowledge about stars, the reckoning of time, the planet hierarchy, it, their order and their greatness. He learned that the Lord planned and prepared and organized the earth spiritually and physically. These conversations took place with the Lord face to face as one man talketh to another as well as with the use of the Urim and Thummim. In Abraham 3.15, we learn one of the reasons why Abraham was shown all these things. In verse 15, And the Lord said unto me, Abraham, I show these things unto thee before ye go into Egypt, that ye may declare all these words. So, 
as Abraham's headed to try and uh, save his family from the famine, he receives this greater knowledge, and as he goes into Egypt, he's going to be sharing it with them, an opportunity to share. So what evidences do we have today of Abraham having left greater knowledge in Egypt, and how did it impact them? Well, the earliest documented appearances of the biblical story of Abraham in ancient Egypt come to us as about 3rd century B.C., 3rd century B.C. During the reign of Ptolemy I, Hecatus of Abdera traveled to Thebes and learned about Abraham from the Egyptian priest. He wrote about these stories in a book called On Abraham and the Egyptians. The book quotes Abraham as condemning the worship of idols. And now we have the writer Eupolemus, and he lived under Egyptian rule in the 2nd century BC. He recounts how Abraham lived in Helopolis, which was the capital of Lower Egypt, and he taught astronomy and other sciences to the Egyptian priests. In the 1st century BC, the Egyptian Jew Artapanus, he wrote an account of Abraham teaching astronomy to the Egyptian pharaoh. And then we have Philo a first century A.D. Egyptian Jew who claimed that Abraham studied astronomy and the motion of the stars, meteorology and mathematics, and used his reasoning on these subjects to understand God. Now, Abraham and Moses were two very popular figures used by Egyptian priests in their ceremonial practices. The early Egyptian writer Origen vented his frustration that the priests were invoking the God of Abraham in their Egyptian ceremonies without even knowing who he was. And I found this interesting. While in Jericho, Origen bought an ancient manuscript of the Hebrew Bible, which uh, was discovered in a jar, a discovery which apparently predates the later discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 20th century. And shown here in this uh, picture, however, is the scroll of Isaiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls. But apparently he found something even earlier. All right. So much for Abraham in Egypt, dispatching incredible, greater information and knowledge to the Egyptians. So as we bring our presentation today to a close, it's, it's interesting to note that Father Abraham, originally Abram, is the common patriarch of the Abrahamic religions including Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. All are monotheistic, meaning they believe in only one God. Abraham is one of the exceptional heroes of the Old Testament. He had the courage to be alone in the world, and he had the faith to carry out the Lord's commandments without hesitation. I want to thank you for joining me today. I hope you found our discussion of the life and times of Abraham to be informative. Next time we meet, we'll be discussing Genesis chapters 24 through 33, the stories of Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, who would be known as Israel, and Esau. Thank you again for joining me.